Claire McIntosh, it is brilliant to have you on 20 Questions With. I'm very excited. Last time I interviewed you, I was interviewing you on stage and we had a very nice meal afterwards with various other people involved in the festival. And it was just lovely to get to know you a bit. So I'm excited to talk to you in this podcast format. Slightly different, of course, but no live audience, but lots of listeners, I hope. No, no curry and no beer. No curry and no beer. Well, I don't know what you might have to your left or your right, and you don't know what I might have to my left or keeping my right. Keeping it off, absolutely, <laughs> keeping it off screen. <laughs> okay, my first question to you is, do you love being a writer? Mostly. I've just come out of two, roughly two years where I haven't loved it. And that's the first time that's happened to me in the, I don't know, 13, 14 years or so that I've been a, a professional writer. Um, and I don't really know why it happened I think lockdown had something to do with it I'm not really sure but I kind of fell out of love with the process of writing with the industry with uh the kind of the pressure to create another twisty book or I just everything I I just stopped enjoying it and it became a job and um that that wasn't really much fun and I'm glad to say that in the last I guess three four months it's all come back and I absolutely love my job again. You've got over your left shoulder, The Last Party, which I think is your most recently published book. But I take it from this idea that it's come back again, that you're writing another one. I am. And I, and I think that might have had something to do with it. But the book um, that I, I, I really struggled to write the second book in this series. Now, I've never written a series before. I've always written standalone novels and um when I wrote The Last Party it was it became clear fairly obviously near the start of, of the process that this was going to be a series and not a standalone and I kind of launched into it and thought well this is great this is going to be so much easier to write because I don't have to create a whole new world I don't have to create a cast of characters I can just carry on where I left off um and, you know, if anyone's listening who writes a successful series, they'll know that that's complete rubbish. Because although you do have the same world, you, there are crossovers. You know, you're, 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 in the, you're in the same universe, I suppose, but you're probably in a different community. You're not going to keep having a crime with exactly the same people because that's, you know, not realistic and, and would get dull. So you are creating new characters and new new settings. And you're doing it whilst also being cognizant of the fact that you want this book to read okay, or you want it to read well on its own if someone dives into the series on book two or eight or 16. But you also want to reward the people who have read the whole series. So you need to keep those Easter eggs kind of in place. You need to reverse engineer twists. So if you've revealed something in book one, you don't want to spoiler that for people who read book two first. So suddenly I felt I was starting again. It was it was like I was a, a brand new writer again. And it was really, really hard. So what does that make you think then of someone like Ian Rankin, who's written lots of books involving the same detective, Rebus? Yeah, I'm just in awe, honestly. I am... Um... I, I don't know how they do it. I really don't. Um, I guess I'll find out. I hope I'll find out. It obviously depends on how well my series sells. You know, if it sells well, I will find out what that feels like in 15 books time. And if it doesn't, I'm just going to pretend it was always meant to be a trilogy and I'll just bow out gracefully. Um, I, 
yeah i i think they're great i'm hoping what what i think happens um and the way i imagine people like that feel is that you kind of relax into the series you relax into that character you get to know them more and more each book you know each, each novel is is another kind of piece of their jigsaw puzzle and so I'm very optimistic that it's going to get easier from now on. I'm interested that you've written before in answer to a question I think that you found it helpful to stop writing when you go off for a break or you go off to ride your horse or you, whatever it is you're up to you come to the end of a writing session you stop writing in in the middle of a scene or in the middle of a passage or in the in, in the middle of a I don't know a page or whatever it might be in the middle of something so that then when you come back to it whenever that is it's an easier process for you is that still true yes yeah totally this is something that started when I was still working full-time so I was a police officer and my hours were, you know, fairly erratic, very, very long, long, long days. And I certainly couldn't have written on a working day because either I was being a police officer or I was being a mother to three under threes at the time. Um, there was no space for writing at all. And so the way that I used to write and the way that I wrote I Let You Go was that I would book days off. And I'd book days off when the kids were in childcare. And then I would go to a bookshop, a cafe, somewhere. And I would write like absolute fury for six hours. And then I might not be able to write again for another three weeks. Um, or I might get a you know an hour here or there. But it was very, very sporadic. And if I finished at the end of a chapter then I was continually being faced with a blank page. And, you know, I, I don't find that helpful. I'm sure there are lots of authors who love the freedom of a blank page. What I need is to be super organized or what I needed was to be super organized and to plan what I was writing next. And the best way for me to do that was to just stop as I was getting into a real flow. I particularly love stopping in the middle of a conversation, you know, a piece of dialogue that's really firing between two characters. I find it really helpful to stop before they finish speaking. And then the next time I sit down at my desk, whether that's two weeks later or two hours later, I'm straight back into it. So I've just done that ever since. Where does the writing come from in you? The story ideas or the writing itself, because the two elements are quite different, I think. So I don't mean specifically the stories. I just mean the writerliness of being a writer, the, the fact that you can be a writer, the fact that you can sit down and the words come, even if it's tough sometimes. The fact that you have been able to make a career, a successful career of being a writer, where do you think that comes from in, in, in you? Because as you said, you were a police officer. and We'll come to that later. So with me, that is an almost 50-50 split, I think of talent and determination. It might even be more determination than, than talent. Um, I am really quite dogged about things. And uh, I, I've, I always wanted to write and I knew I could write as, as a kid. Like, you know, you know what subjects you're good at, don't you? Even as a sort of seven, eight year old. And I was good at English. I was good at the language side of it. I was good at um, you know, interpreting books and retelling stories and, and all sorts of things, all to do with language. I was good at, at foreign languages. And so 
that was something that I I excelled at at school. Um, but I never considered it as a as a career. And this is something that that a lot of writers say that they they didn't have any kind of role models. I, I didn't know anyone who worked in the arts. I didn't even know any journalists, um, let alone novelists or artists, painters. Um, I only knew people who worked in improper jobs, you know, who uh, were doctors or lawyers or receptionists or worked in shops or were teachers. I didn't know anyone in the arts. And so it just didn't cross my mind. And I, um, I, I went down a different path. But that that writing, that storytelling instinct stayed with me. And, and it, it became a kind of a thread, actually, which ran through all my jobs. And when and particularly through through the police. But when I left the police um, and I needed to earn an income, writing was the thing that I I sort of fell on, I suppose, as being uh, a skill that I had that I could maximise. And the, the maximising bit is where the determination comes in, that actually I had to make this work. I didn't think, right, I've got to be a best-selling novelist who's going to sell two million books in 40 countries. Um, I, what I thought was I have to be able to pay the bills now that I've left the police and I'm going to do that through writing. So you didn't leave the police in order to become an author? No, I left the police in order to not break. Why were you on the point of breaking if you were on the point of breaking? I I was anticipating breaking. <laughs> um, it was a uh, it was a mixture of things. My my priorities had definitely changed after having children. Um, I was still, I was incredibly ambitious. I joined the police on the, uh, what was then the, the graduate recruitment scheme. And the year that I joined, I was one of 12 officers out of um, many, many hundreds who had applied on this, this particular scheme that they used to run. And there was a lot of pressure on me to achieve and to progress. And I did that and I did it uh, well, I think. I was very competent and I was very driven. And I wanted to be chief constable. You know, I, I, I wanted to change the world. I was um, I felt very strongly that there were elements of British policing that we did very badly. Um, I, I still still feel that about lots of elements of policing and I wanted to be in a position to change them and although you can have a huge amount of influence at every rank in the police and and arguably the the lowest ranks are are the most significant in terms of of that impact actually if you want to change the way we police you have to be a, a senior officer and take a more strategic and more political role and so that's where I was going uh and when so in 2011 i found myself in a situation where i i had three very very small children um i'd also been been through a rather unusual situation because um i'd had a, a set of twins and one of our um sons had died and then very very quickly just a, a matter of months afterwards i'd fallen pregnant with another set of twins um so i'd had this very very intense parenthood experience where I was I was grieving and I was trying to to manage these small children um and I um I had an appraisal at work ready for my um promotion to chief inspector and it was one of these appraisals where um they call it a 360 where all your colleagues give feedback on what you're like 
and it was a really great report and I'd brought it home to show my husband because I was really proud of it you know there, there was developmental um elements to it but basically it said I was energetic and uh, my door was always open I made time for people I was creative and you know positive and all all the good stuff and he read it and he said yeah this is great who is this woman I I have no idea he like I do not recognize the woman in in this report and it was a a real it was the moment my life changed completely because I thought I'm doing this all wrong this this isn't me having it all I I'm not actually um I, I can't see a way forward of, of being the type of senior leader that I want to be but also the type of mother I want to be because what I was doing was I was using all the best bits of me for work and giving my family the leftovers um so I took a career break for two years to to take stock really before something broke when whether that was my mental health or my family or you know my work something was gonna it, it wasn't sustainable to keep going at the level I, I was going um so I took a two-year career break and I wrote for magazines and businesses and social media um clients and then just before I was due back to go to work, due back to work in um, summer of 2013, I signed a two book deal. What was it like being a woman in the police? I've been asked this question so often over the last couple of years. Um, and I think everyone, everyone kind of wants or expects the same answer. I think people expect me to say it was really tough um people were so sexist um I was constantly you know having to challenge things and you know it just it just wasn't at all um I wasn't I, looking for any answer no, at all I'm just curious and and I and I don't really mean that, that that you were specifically but the people are often surprised when I tell them that I could probably count the number of times I felt sidelined because of my gender on one hand um it it felt like a meritocracy um i i loved it i mean i loved it so much i i cried when i handed my warrant card in and i cut off all my colleagues i i couldn't bear it i i handed in my job phone and i didn't give anyone my personal mobile i told them i i would be in touch and i just disappeared because i couldn't bear the fact that I was walking away, I feel quite emotional now, that I was walking away from this incredible career that I thought I was going to have. Um, yeah, it was it was good. Um, and in terms of being a woman, you know, there, there are individual things that, that were difficult. Um, it, it's much harder to sit in a surveillance van uh, and, you know, pee in a bottle when you haven't got a penis. It's, you know, there are things like that that are challenging but actually the day-to-day -day job um certainly in in my experience felt really very equal it was just the the childcare was tough and and that is going to be the same whatever gender you are if you are the primary carer of your children as I was it was very difficult when things do go wrong in the police what does that make you feel when they go wrong now Yes. Well, if, if you hear a, a story where there's been bad behaviour by the police. It often makes me feel conflicted. I um, I think in common with 
all my former colleagues, I feel very, very let down, very betrayed, very angry when uh, corrupt officers are revealed. I also feel incredibly frustrated that the police still haven't got their house in order. Um, I feel very uh, angry with the media often on the police's behalf um, because so much of it is misrepresented. Um, yeah, I mean, a host, a host of feelings. Do you have any regrets about changing to your career and becoming an author? I was going to say to become an author, but as you've said, it wasn't to become an author. Do you have any regrets? You got emotional there, looking back at the career that you had, looking back at the career that you walked away from, and yet you've had this extraordinary life as a writer. Do you have any regrets at all? Yes. I'm um, I'm very greedy, aren't I? I want, I want to uh, to have my cake and eat it. Yeah, I, 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 there have been times when I have thought about going back, uh, which, which would be an, an extraordinary thing to, to do and, and a ridiculous thing to, to do, I'm sure. But I, you know, the reasons why I joined the police are still there. I, you know, I'm fundamentally someone who wants to make a difference to society and who believes it's possible to make a difference um, to society. And the thing I struggle with the most is I, I don't do that in a meaningful way. And you can argue about books being, you know, um, essential. Books are essential. But ultimately, I, you know, I write popular fiction. I write escapism. I, I give people a few hours entertainment, maybe something to, to prompt some discussion or to think about, but I'm not changing the world. And I, yeah, I struggle with that. Does being a police officer leave you? In other words, are there elements of your personality or your learned behaviours that sort of hang over from your time as an, as an officer? Yes, totally. There are, walking through a city with me is is a nightmare because I'm just constantly sort of on on alert. Um, there are there are shortcuts. You know, I st I still speak like a police officer. I, this is possibly because my husband was in the job as well, and so we will use you know language that is is very much from uh, our, our police time without really thinking about it. And uh what else questioning questioning my kids interrogating teenagers um you know those those level two interview skills uh of um you know uh giving giving someone uh just enough enough rope to hang themselves um before you you slam them with the evidence that you've gathered that's been a very useful skill over the last uh decade and a half of parenting you'll all obviously have been asked this question many times before but I'm interested to know to what extent your experience in the police has informed you as a writer. And I think I know that you weren't necessarily in inspired by the crimes that you were involved in, in solving and, and getting to, to prosecution. But the, the storytelling element of, and dealing with facts, of course, but the storytelling element of being a police officer has helped you as a storyteller. Yes, there are, there are two distinct elements of policing I think which uh, maybe three maybe three elements which inform my writing one is uh, the empathy 
that you need in order to be a good police officer. You can be a bad police officer without any empathy at all, but to be a good police officer, you need to be able to put yourself in the shoes of the person you're you're dealing with, whether that's a victim, a witness or, or an offender. And that of course is what a novelist has to do as well. The second is in the number of people I met from such different backgrounds. And I, I grew up in, in a really, really safe, secure, middle-class bubble. And there are some professions I could have gone into which would have kept me in that bubble. And that would have given me a very skewed perspective on the world. But because I worked in the police and because of the people that you encounter in the police, it really brought home to me that um, that kind of there but for the grace of God element of life, that actually we are all a heartbeat away from living on the streets, from committing a crime, from being the victim of a crime. It, it, it You know, life can absolutely turn on a dime. And that's something which... I regularly explore in in my novels that sort of that that line why good people become bad and and bad people do good things and then you you mentioned the storytelling itself and being a an investigator is all about finding the story you know it's it's finding the story that the um forensics are telling you and the cameras are telling you it's listening to unreliable narrators and and sort of filtering out the truth and then it's presenting that story in the most compelling way so that a court, a judge, a jury um, can understand not just what's happened, but why it happened and what impact it's had. I'm really curious to know a little bit more about your experience with offenders and your reactions to them. Because it's fascinating to hear you talk about how things can go wrong for people very quickly sometimes. Did you feel sorry sometimes for the people that you were having to deal with did you did you sense in some of these people regret sorrow that they'd behaved in the way that they had that they'd let themselves down how how often was it that you would come into contact with someone who i mean no one's all bad of course but d- did seem a pretty pretty bad person in everyday language so rarely so 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 rarely are people thoroughly thoroughly bad and happy to be bad it, it's such an unusual state, I think. The majority of people I encountered felt more, well, I, you know, it, the circumstances are so varied. You would have people who had committed crime for the first time, um, people who just felt an enormous sense of resignation that this is just their life. This is what they have to do in order to get on, just like I had to, Put on a uniform and and come to work, um, and and yeah, a, a huge number of people who regretted what they did, either because their act was a spur of the moment decision, or because they they had been pushed into doing something they weren't comfortable doing. Uh, I I don't think that anybody is born wicked. Is is you know born thinking that what they really want to do is pursue a life of crime it is um it is almost always a result of circumstance do you see yourself as a writer or a crime writer or both interesting question a writer i think i don't um i mean i will i will call myself a crime writer and and will often use that term 
because the majority of my books so far have been crime. But no, definitely a writer because um, I I don't really think in terms of genre when I'm when I'm writing or when I'm thinking about what I might write next. I'm thinking about story, and that story often ends up being a bit crimey uh, or very crimey because in my experience a lot of stories do you know it's 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 like when you look at all of Shakespeare's plays and you can pretty much find a crime in in all of them um but I like to think I'm a bit more general than that but when you are writing are you is part of your brain conforming to a sort of known way of doing things within the genre once I know what my story is, I then know whether it's a crime story. And then, yes, I am absolutely working within the guidelines, I suppose, of a conventional crime story, but always looking at how I can manipulate them, play with them, break them. How do you weight the significance of the plot, the story, and I don't just mean the plot of the crime, but the, the story that sometimes goes beyond that plot and the characters themselves. This is something that's changed, I think, over the course of my my career so far. And I would say that in the beginning, I was much more weighted towards plot and story and twists and structures. And as as I've got more experienced and as I've sort of relaxed, I suppose, into my style, the characters have come to the fore. And actually it was it was a non-crime book that I wrote that really made that switch for me because I'd had three very successful psychological thrillers. And then my fourth novel was um, general fiction, contemporary fiction called After the End. And it was very much a character-led novel, which meant I had to write it in a very different way. I, I couldn't plan out my structure because really the actions depended on what those characters would do. And so the process of writing it was totally different. And I found when I came to write the following novel, which was a um, an action thriller called Hostage, that I was writing in, in that way again, that I was being led by the characters. So I think it, it, it's something that switched for me. You're a voracious reader, aren't you? I, I can see the books on your bookshelves behind you, but you do read a huge amount, don't you? And and I can imagine that that, that well, I know that that really helps you as a writer, doesn't it? It does. And interestingly, I, when I mentioned earlier that I had not enjoyed my job for 18 months, two, two years, I wasn't reading as much either in those two years. And I don't know, I don't know which came first. I don't know if I might have re sort of reignited my passion if I'd read more what I found is that the more I read the more sort of depressed I got about my own writing you know the, the two are very very linked so sometimes if I read a brilliant book I can find that really inspiring but other times um and you know I I don't know what this this is, is not covering myself with glory, but there are times when I can read a brilliant book and it just makes me feel so shit about my own writing that I, I won't read it or I will start reading it and I'll think, no, no, I, I can't. I can't face reading something this brilliant because it's going to make me feel so completely rubbish. So the two, yeah, it, it's really, it, it really is linked. And I, I pick up 
I think subconsciously just pick up all sorts of of things about um, you know everything from imagery to clever tricks to structures. Um, nothing that I I could really put my finger on. I wouldn't put down a book and go, ah, oh, that's it. That's what I'm going to do in my next book. Uh, you know, I'm going to copy that structure, or it, it's more that it often unlocks something in me. You've spent some time as a judge, and I wonder, not not a, a legal judge, but a literary judge, and I wonder whether that has impacted your work, that looking at other people's work through a critical eye, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but looking to appraise other people's work has filtered back into the way that you write. I'm glad you qualified the type of judge because I was actually a bit worried that I'd forgotten <laughs> about my time as a high court as a high court judge. Um, yes, I think it has actually. I haven't done a huge amount of judging. I would love to do more. The the most enjoyable judging experience I had was for the Costa First Novel Awards, and it was so good for me because um, when you when you judge the first novel awards, you're reading across all categories, so you're not judging, you know, crime or sci-fi or whatever. And I remember getting this list of thirty or so books that I had to read. The the, the long list is um, or the entries are split, but across all the judging panels. And, and to be completely honest, my heart sank at some of the books because there are genres that I just do not read. I don't read sci-fi. I don't read fantasy. I don't read horror. I don't particularly, I'm not really drawn to historical fiction. I like, I'm really, I'm showing my true narrow. I like commercial crime really is. This is what we're, we're, we're coming back to. Um, so I was a bit daunted by it. And then what I discovered, uh, and, and most people listening will not be shocked at this, is how amazing it is to be pushed out of your comfort zone. You know, this is why people join book clubs, isn't it? To, to, to be encouraged to read something that you wouldn't normally read. And so I read sci-fi and horror and fantasy and historical, and I found incredible stories. And I think that really really stretched me as a reader but also unlocked something as as a writer uh so I would absolutely do more judging do you read your books once they're published in other words have you ever picked up one of your books and read it and if so and even if not so looking back at the novels that you've written is there one that stands out so far as being something that you're particularly proud of that you think yeah I really got that right I have not ever read one of my books, not cover to cover. Um, the closest I've got is a sort of skim read of I Let You Go when I was adapting it for a TV treatment. Uh, and I wouldn't read them because it would just be too frustrating to see all the things that I want to change because you can edit forever, can't you? And um uh, particularly my earlier books. I mean, I, you know, this is a job. We 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 romanticise being a writer, but um, this is a job and we should get better and better at our jobs. And so it is logical that my more recent books are, are better than my early books. And that's not necessarily that the book as a whole is a better book, but the craft of writing should be better. And 
when I look back at I Let You Go, which was my debut, and I am immensely proud of I Let You Go, I will remain forever grateful to it for changing my life and forever proud of the twist in I Let You Go, which um, I don't think I can ever replicate. But there are stylistic things about that book that make me wince if I, you know, if I have to read a page or two at an event. And so for that reason, I would not go back and, uh, and, and read through them. Even though it's my job to ask you questions and therefore count the questions, given that I've given this series the title 20 Questions With, I think I might have lost count. I don't know whether I've already asked you 20 or whether we've got one or perhaps even two more. This is going to be our final question. And because I feel like there are so many more things I, I would like to ask you, I want you to give as long and, and as fulsome an answer as you possibly can. I want you to kind of try and sum up for us who you think you are and what you're like as a person and what your kind of passions and interests are. Because I know you live in the countryside. I know you ride horses, but just paint us a picture of what it's like being Claire McIntosh and how you see yourself. This is uh, the worst question anyone has ever asked anyone in the history of mankind. You want an elevator pitch for myself. Have you any idea how hard that is to do? I, I'm not. I'm not even sure that we as people can sum ourselves up. There's a very good reason why people ask their friends to write their dating profiles, isn't there? Because our, our friends can sum us up in the same way that my editor will write a much better synopsis of my book than I will, because I'm too close and I'm too close to myself. Um, my days are pretty dull, if I'm honest. I like them that way. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm I'm one of those people who's a very sociable introvert. So I absolutely love meeting people. I'm not remotely shy or awkward. I will barrel into conversations. If I'm at a drinks party and I don't know anyone, I will pick someone who looks interesting and I'll go and have a conversation with them. Um, but I'm an introvert in the sense that after that party has finished, I would like everybody to leave me alone and I would like to shut the door and be completely silent um, for several hours. And so my life here in rural North Wales in Snowdonia is very quiet and calm and normal and, and lovely. And I walk the dogs, um, uh, look after the three teens uh, and stop myself being a workaholic. That's my biggest flaw, I suppose, is I am, uh, I find it very, very difficult to switch off. And so I'm if I'm not physically at my desk, I'm constantly thinking about a book or a business idea or, you know, something. I'm just constantly on the go. Um, so, yeah, that's I mean, who am I? Who am I? I'm I'm I think I'm a decent person. I think I'm a decent person who is quite good company and uh, always up for a chat. And just as a, a little sub question within that question, this is definitely cheating. Do you kind of recognize yourself now as someone that you might have wanted to become or predicted you would become when you were a girl? How much of your growing up can you see? How much of your childhood can you see in where you are now? Very little, I think. My 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 mother might disagree. She she would probably tell you that I haven't changed at all and I'm just as awkward and difficult now as I was as a kid. I I think I've changed enormously and I think I continue to to change. 
And the biggest way that happens is just in how settled I feel and confident. Uh, and particularly since, so I'm 46 at the moment and 40 was a real turning point for I've, me. I've never heard anyone describe their age as something they are at the moment. I love it. <laughs> I'm 43 at the moment, just for the moment. <laughs> It changes, doesn't it? I, you know, I, I have listened to some of your podcasts stretching back. Um, and so I'm, I guess I'm projecting that when your listeners are listening to this from the archives uh, in 40 years from now, that I am, of course, uh, 46 in this particular moment. And from, I, I would say from about 40, I just, I stopped giving a fuck. Is, is what happened and and it's so brilliantly liberating to not really care what you look like or what whether people you know what, what opinion people have of you that actually what matters is how you feel and how you behave and I think quite a lot about um what what I refer to as spheres of influence like if, if it is not within my sphere of influence I am not going to stress over it I am only going to worry about what's in my immediate control should finish by saying that as i mentioned earlier the last party is, is sitting there on your bookshelf or on your cupboard over your left shoulder and i take it from what you've been saying earlier that you are now writing the third part in that trilogy is that correct yes so no it's ex- not a trilogy though it is a series sorry it might a become series. a trilogy if no one wants to read it <laughs> so, you're right okay you're writing the third book in what you hope might be a 15 part series 15 book series possibly even more <laughs> exactly that that's about right yeah yeah <laughs> okay very good and when might we be able to read that uh so the second book in the series is coming out on july the 20th of this year and then book three will will follow uh i don't know when it's done claire mackintosh it was a great delight to interview for 20 questions with it might have been 21 or 22 but thank you very much i mean let's face it it could have been 40 49 (laughs) who knows thank you so much